Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them back up to the passage that Josh began reading for us in Exodus chapter 19. That's where we'll start. Uh, But as you turn there, let me pray for our time together in God's Word. Lord, we come. uh, We come seeking to hear your voice. We thank you that you've spoken. Uh, You're the one true living God, and your word is true. Sanctify us even now in your truth. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to believe the wonderful things that you've laid out for us in your word. Uh, Strengthen us with faith so that as a result of our time, we may be more faithful to you this week. Uh, Remind us again of Jesus and of his righteousness uh, that is ours as a gift of grace. To that end, Lord, we commit ourselves and pray you bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been taking a little mini-series before we dive back into our study of Mark uh, on the covenant. And we've made a number of observations over the last couple of weeks about this idea of the covenant. We, we see this language throughout uh, the scriptures, and one of the things that we've said is that this idea of the covenant, it's the dominant storyline of the Bible. The main thread that connects all the stories of the Bible together and makes them one cohesive story is this idea of covenant that God himself has decided to have relationship with us, his people. And it's summarized throughout with the saying that we've looked at each week, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so we've been looking at the different places throughout Scripture where God teaches us about covenant and we we see that there's these different moments where he especially highlights this reality and one of the things we've seen is that in each of the successive covenants, what God is doing is he's opening up the curtain a little bit more each time so that, so that we can see more of what's going on. So with Adam, he began to open up the curtain just a little bit, and we were looking through, and we, we saw just a couple of things. With Noah, he begins to draw it back some more. Last week with Noah, he, he draws it back. Today, we're going to consider the covenant with Israel or the Mosaic covenant. Next week, we're going to look at the covenant with David, and then finally, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the new covenant in Jesus. That's where the Lord just throws open the curtain and lets us see in full what he's been up to. And so we've said that each, each of the curtains opens up a little bit more. And one of our tasks has been to ask, what new thing, in a sense, is God showing us through each of these covenants? Quick recap, we saw with Noah that God created humanity special. We're special, we're made in God's image. We're in a special relationship to him. And that being made in his image comes with this special calling to reflect him and to extend the boundaries of his garden kingdom to the end of the earth. That didn't last very long and Adam and Eve chose to disobey and sin. But we see that even in the face of man's sin, God is going to be gracious. God is going to be kind. He makes a promise to Eve that one of her descendants is going to crush the head of the serpent, that he's going to redeem his people, that he will be their God, and they will be his people, and that their sin will not get in the way. We saw in the covenant with Noah that God cares deeply for his creation. In the face of man's growing sin, God rescues Noah and his family by grace. He, he rescues all the animals of the earth because he cares for creation. We saw last week as we considered the covenant with Abraham that God's rescue plan, the scope begins to tighten. We're no longer looking at all of creation and it begins to focus on one man and his family, Abraham. 
And God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so we come today to Exodus chapter 19. And as we approach this, I think there's a few uh, important things for us to see just to catch us up from Abraham to Moses and Israel here before the Lord at Mount Sinai. Uh, Roughly 400 years has passed from the story of Abraham last week and where we find the nation of Israel here today. God has been fulfilling his promise Abraham was one man, he was childless, he and his wife were old, and and here in Exodus 19, uh, his descendants have grown and multiplied and formed a mighty nation that most people uh, agree is close to 2 million people. So in the span of 400 years, God is beginning to fulfill his promise to make Abraham into a mighty nation. Just as God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, they were enslaved in Egypt under the hand of of Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, we get this beautiful picture where God's people are experiencing slavery at the hands of Pharaoh. Life is not what it's supposed to be. And it says their cries go up to God. And it says God hears their cries and he remembers his covenant with Abraham and therefore he commits himself again to work on behalf of his people. If you've read the Bible, you know the story that comes next. God rescues his people from Egypt with his mighty right hand through the ten plagues, culminating with the death of the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt. That's where we get the story that God leads Israel through the Red Sea on dry land and then swallows up all of his enemies behind them. This is where we get the story where God feeds his people in the wilderness with bread from heaven, with manna. From heaven. This is where we get the story where God uh, gives his people water to drink from a rock in the desert. God is at work in and on behalf of his people. And so we find here in Exodus 19, Israel at the base of Mount Sinai being prepared for a fresh picture, a fresh revelation of the covenant that God has made with them. And the thing that we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, as the main advancement of what God is doing here in the covenant uh, with Israel, the Mosaic covenant, is the idea of law. Here in the Mosaic covenant, in new and fresh ways, we get more information than we've ever had previously about who God is, about the world that he's made, about his calling upon our lives. And the Bible summarizes all of that revelation under the term law. One guy said this that I was reading this week, the giving of the law in written form is the key distinctive of the covenant with Israel. The law summarized in the Ten Commandments is the essence of the covenant with Israel. And so as we seek to unpack what God is doing with Israel, the the main word that comes forward that we want to consider is this idea of law. And so it's helpful to know exactly what the Bible means when it talks about law. Josh read a passage for us from Deuteronomy chapter 4 where it equated the Ten Commandments with the covenant, the law. The law is not less than that, but it's more than that. For us, the law is everything that God said to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, and all of that is contained for us in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when we talk about the law, what we mean is all of this that, that front ends the Bible that we have before us. And so as we dive into this idea of the law, the driving question I want us to have is this. How should we view the law? What, what should our perspective 
be? What's the proper orientation to the law? And the reason why that matters is this, because Jesus came on the scene, and in Matthew chapter 5, he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so we're, we're people of the law in some way. So it's vital for us as those this side of the cross to ask, what's the proper orientation that we ought to have towards the law, towards the summation of what God has spoken about himself and about his world and what he's called us to as his people. And to do that, I want to offer us five perspectives on the law. Uh, The majority of these will come out of Exodus chapter 19 and we will bounce around. But here's what I know what some of you are thinking, a five-point sermon. I hope we get to eat lunch. Don't worry. It's actually going to be the shortest sermon of the year because we're also going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, It'd be easy for us to spend weeks and weeks and months plumbing the depths of all of this. We're just going to begin to scratch the surface. So let me offer us five perspectives on the law. Uh, Exodus 19 will be our diving off point. The first is this. The foundation for the law is grace. The foundation for the law is grace. In Exodus chapter 19, God speaks to Israel as a nation for the first time. And think about what his first words are. The first thing that he wants Israel to hear is this. The end of verse 3. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The first word, the law hadn't even been given yet. The first word is, don't forget that you're here because I am faithful to the covenant. I graciously rescued you because of my promise to Abraham. Before they even get the law, Yahweh their God wants to remind them that their standing before him has always been a result of his faithful covenant work, not theirs. And he reemphasizes this in Exodus chapter 20, which is where we get the Ten Commandments. What's funny, he gives us these Ten Commandments, but the first word in verse 2 is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So whatever the law does in teaching us about God and teaching us about his calling, the foundation for the law is grace. The law is going to guide them how to live. It's going to tell them what God wants from them, but it's never going to serve for them and never going to serve for us as the basis for our relationship with God. He loves us because he loves us, and he set his affection upon us. My wife, Jennifer, and I, we have five children, and do you know why they're my kids? Do you know why I love them? Because they're my kids, and no rule I give them And their obedience to it, or most of the time lack thereof, changes whether or not they're my kids. They're my kids, and I love them. Now, that doesn't mean that their disobedience or obedience doesn't change the intimacy that we enjoy in our relationship, but it never serves as the basis for whether or not I'm willing to call them son or daughter. They're my children, And so Israel needs to be reminded and we need to be reminded that whatever we think about the law and God's commands for us, and he has some, which we'll get to, the foundation for all of them is that God has said to you, I will be your God and you will be my people. The foundation for the law is grace. The second perspective we need to have is this. The law is an accuser. 
that exposes our sin and drives us to Jesus. The law is an accuser, exposes our sin and drives us to Jesus. What's interesting, if you read the Bible, if you read the law, if you read Genesis to Deuteronomy, you're going you're to see two what seem like contradictory things. On one hand, God is going to say, be perfect, be holy as I am holy. And then in the very next page, he's going to say, yet when you sin, here's the path to forgiveness and for atonement. The law assumes that we can't keep it. Like, if we just went and looked at the Ten Commandments, every single one of us would have to raise our hands and say, at some point, if not in the past 24 hours, I've broken that. I'm a lawbreaker. The law is intended to expose our sin In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing about the law and he says this. It's real helpful for us. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law, think about this picture, the law is like the flashing school zone sign that says 25, and you look down at your dash, and you're going 40, and you think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. That's what the law is intended to do. It's intended to expose us and show us that we can't actually be holy as God is holy. But the good news is the law doesn't stop there. The law then tells us that there is a path to righteousness. It's just not from within. It's from without. It's in and through the person and the work of Jesus. I want to read a couple verses from uh, the book of Galatians where Paul is talking about the relationship of the Christian to the law and how Jesus fits into that. And he says this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the law says, hey, you can't do it. Don't worry, there is one that can, and he has. Not only has he perfectly fulfilled the law, he's taken upon himself the curse that your disobedience and lack of law-keeping demands. So the law is intended to expose us and drive us to Jesus. As I was thinking about this morning, here's what I know. Uh, Some of you in here, most of you in here, I pray, you know Jesus. Your faith is in him. You trust in him. You belong to God. Yet maybe right now, or maybe it's seasons in your life, or maybe you notice that one of your veers is to get stuck in a rut where You look more at your work and more at your action than you do at Jesus's. What the law is doing to you this morning, I pray, is that it's reminding you that that's vain and futile and to look to Christ. Here's what I also know. There's likely some of you in here this morning who don't know Jesus. Maybe you're visiting with a friend, family member. Maybe you just decided, I'll check out this church thing. Maybe you've sat in church your whole life, but your heart's never been changed. You don't belong to him. You don't trust in Christ. The good news is that wherever you are this morning, the solution is the same. Look to Jesus. He alone fulfilled the law. He alone was perfect. And he alone went to the cross 
and laid down his life. And as we'll celebrate at the table in a little bit, his body was broken, his blood was shed, that you might have life. So one of our perspectives has got to be that the law is an accuser that exposes our sin and drives us to Jesus. Thirdly, the law is a prescription for honoring the God who loves and rescues us. As those who have been freed from the burden of the law by Jesus, the law now becomes a prescription for honoring the one who has loved us so well. In Exodus chapter 19, if you'll look at verse 5 and 6, right on the heels of God telling Israel the foundation for the law is grace, look what he says. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you're kind of like, wait a second. Like, I thought there was this whole grace thing, and now you're telling me that if I do this, I'll belong to you. And so they seem to be at odds. I think a better way of understanding this, instead of this conditional understanding of if we obey, God will love us, which we know is fulfilled in Christ, God is saying, as those who belong to Jesus, as those who have faith in Jesus, if we obey God, if we fulfill his commands, we will grow up into the people that he's called us to be. The more and more we take God's prescription of the law, we honor him as the God who has made us and who loves us and who rescues us. Faith-driven obedience results in us fulfilling our calling of honoring God and representing him. It's interesting, there's these two verses in the New Testament I want to share. The first is in Matthew 22, some religious folks come up to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, uh, what's the most important law in the Bible? And Jesus, as he typically does, he gives a short, succinct answer. He says, basically, to paraphrase, the most important law is this. Love God with your whole being, and out of the overflow of that, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, all the prophets. A little while later, he's interacting with some of his disciples, and he says this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So think about that. Jesus says the law is summarized in a love for God that overflows into a love for people. And then he tells his followers, and if you want to love me, keep my commandments. Jesus' love language is obedience. That's how we express love to Jesus. That's how we honor him. That's how we glorify him. We have faith in him and trust that his record is our record now. We don't look to our own works, we look to his. And then in response to that, we say, now Jesus, what do you want me to do? If you would lay down your life for me, I'll do anything for you. And we follow him, we obey him, and we testify, Lord, you're good. Lord, you're great. And you're worthy. So let me ask us this question as we think about applying this perspective of God's law being a prescription for honoring him. What importance does obedience occupy in your life? What... What happens in your life when you think about obedience? Is that, is that important to you? Another question to frame it another way is this is, what areas of your life does God not have freedom to speak? So God comes calling. We say, hey, Jesus, we're glad you're here. You can go look around at anything. Just don't go in that room. That belongs to me. The key's in my pocket. And Jesus is saying, no, I want it all. I want it all because I love you and I've 
redeemed you? What areas of your life does God not have freedom to speak? What importance does obedience occupy in your life? For those of us who are redeemed, the law becomes a prescription to honor the one who has loved us. The fourth perspective we need to have is this, that the law is a pathway to flourishing as we live according to God's design. The law provides a pathway to flourishing and guardrails along the side that says, stay on the road, it's better for you here. And that verse that Josh read from Deuteronomy chapter 30, I I love the language where, where Moses says to the people, I've set before you today life and death. If you obey me, you'll live and be blessed. If you disobey, you'll experience curse and you'll, you'll perish. And we know that he can't be talking about our standing before him because remember, we're already his people by grace. What he's saying is this, God, your father, made everything. He knows the rules of this game called life. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Bible tells us how life works best. The Bible is a love gift from a heavenly father that wants you to flourish. And that picture from Psalm chapter one of the person who meditates on God's law and day and night, what does it say about the person where the law of God is their centering point and their anchor? They're like streams planted, or like, like trees planted by streams of water. They flourish. God desires flourishing for you, therefore he has given us his law. At another place in Deuteronomy, which we didn't read, Moses is talking to Israel, and he's trying to motivate them to follow the Lord. And he says, what other nation is there like ours that has the Lord as their God? What other nation is there like ours that has these good and right rules and statutes to guide the way we live? And his point is, obedience leads to flourishing. Do these and you will live. You'll flourish As those who have faith in Jesus, we obey and we flourish. And so let me ask us this question. What standard of the good life do you have? What's your picture of the good life? You know, the world says, accumulate, manipulate, get yours, run run over whoever gets in the way. Your heavenly Father says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake and for the gospel, you'll find it. It's a different picture of the good life. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Deny yourself. That's the good life. And the law provides a pathway to this flourishing as we live according to God's design. Fifth and finally, the law is a blueprint for fulfilling our calling of manifesting God to the nations. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image. And he says that because you're in my image, my goal for you is to extend my image over the face of the earth. We see that beginning to expand when last week we considered that God's call to Abraham was what? I'm going to bless you so that through you, I can ultimately bless all the nations of the earth. God's design is that the blessings of the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And here, in and through the law, we begin to get a blueprint of how that works. This verse, as we've just read, if we'll keep covenant with God as those who are saved by faith, we grow up into a kingdom of priests. People who come to God and are blessed and then go to the nations of the earth and say, look how good and wonderful this God is. 
As we live according to God's law, he grows us up into a people who manifest him to the nations. The Apostle Peter picks up on this language and in 1 Peter chapter 2 applies it to us, the church. And this is what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As those who live in covenant with God, he makes us into a people that proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness. In the very next chapter, in verse 16 of chapter 3, Peter says that as we honor Christ as Lord in our lives, as we become holy, as we obey the law, it attracts other people to our life and begs them to ask the question, what is it with you? And we get a chance to testify to the gospel. The law is a blueprint for fulfilling our calling of manifesting God to the nations. So as we approach the law as believers in Christ, we we need to see that our standing is based on grace and the law drives us to Jesus. But as those saved by faith, the law now becomes a prescription to honor God. It becomes a pathway to experience flourishing. It becomes a blueprint to being the people God has called us to be. And as we prepare to come to the table here in a few minutes, I just want to leave us with this one image. One of the other developments of the law that we just don't have time to consider today is this idea that God introduces a a mediator. God is holy. He can't speak face to face with man because man is sinful. So he appoints Moses and he tells Moses how, how he's going to interact with the people and all of God's communication comes through Moses Moses is God's mediator to his people. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we're told this, that Jesus himself is the mediator of a new covenant, a new and better covenant, that Jesus entered into the true holy place, the true throne room in heaven, bringing an offering and a sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own life, and that his blood uh, gives a better word and saves us from our sins. And so as I pray and as we stand to sing and begin preparing for this meal that our gracious Father has laid for us, have that in mind that Jesus is your mediator. And even now the Bible says he's at the Father's right hand and he's praying for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that you love us. We thank you that we have the great privilege of being called your children. And that, Father, in the face of our overwhelming sin, you've made a way for us where there was no way. You sent Jesus, born under the law, to redeem us who were condemned under the law. Lord Jesus, you obeyed perfectly always. The reward you should have received was glory in heaven, and yet you went to the cross for us, for faithless covenant lawbreakers. And you did it because you love us. You did it uh, joyfully for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. So, Father, we pray that you would overwhelm our hearts as we sing and as we come to your table with the truth that we belong to you and that out of the overflow of that, we would seek to live all of life for you, honoring you, flourishing, and speaking, proclaiming your excellencies to the end of the earth. Uh, Lord, thank you for speaking. Uh, Encourage us now even as we sing. We pray in the name of Jesus.